Welcome back, everybody. This is the Prepared Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Austin. I'm back. I think last time I was on, I called it my Bandcamp sabbatical, but I'm back now. It was really, really great to be able to take a week away from everything, disconnect, uh, almost even disconnect a little too much. We really struggled with internet reception up there while trying to communicate with folks, but it was a great opportunity. I've done this for a couple years, uh, obviously, you know, since starting the podcast. But even before that, music was a huge part of my life, and I've been going to band camp pretty much every summer since I graduated high school. I've been going away to teach, uh, to work with kids, and it's a, a very rewarding experience, something I, I kind of look forward to every year. The teaching can be stressful, but it's also awesome at the same time. The the disconnection from the internet and screens, being able to spend a lot of time outdoors and soak up that vitamin D and touch grass and all that, it's just a very welcome change of pace for me that kind of helps signal the end of the summer and break things up a bit. And I just, I, I always look forward to it. Always really enjoy it. It was a pretty good week. Kids got a lot done. Uh, weather wasn't too hot. We did get rained on a little bit, nothing too bad. Uh, the one thing of note that I will share with everyone, because we talk about it a lot here when we talk about, you know, taking care of yourself and, and good choices for our bodies. We did have to have an ambulance on site because we had a child who decided they were going to I guess, mainline energy drinks all week. So if you're looking at, you know, energy drinks are 200 milligrams to 300 milligrams. If you're drinking them with every meal, which I believe this child was, that's 600 to 900 milligrams of caffeine a day. And they made it until the end of the week, uh, Friday. And at that point, their heart rate spiked so high, they had to have medical attention. They had to be taken to a hospital to be obviously seen by a doctor. They're fine. Nothing, nothing permanent, nothing horrific or bad or anything happened to them. But, you know, it it is scary when those kinds of things happen, especially when we uh, see the way some people treat their bodies and, and, and how they eat. Right. So definitely want to share that. And, you know, obviously kids are young, right? They bounce, uh, they recover as we get older, those kinds of things become more dangerous. So don't be one of those people that uses an energy drink as a meal substitute. Drink water, take care of your body, just make sure you don't end up in any bad medical situations over just some some poor choices, you know. Uh, throughout the week, I drank some Black Rifle, uh, the 300 milligram espresso. That was all the caffeine I had. And, you know, I started the day with that, got through the day. The rest of the time, I was drinking, uh, you know, 32 ounce uh, Nalgene bottle of water. Get done with the rehearsal block, come back in top it back off. I would, you know, it wasn't super hot. I think the hottest day we had was like 80. So we were in the seventies for pretty much all of it. And at night it actually got down into the high fifties. So it was pretty chilly. Um, but you know, still had at least uh, two or three Nalgene's a day of water to make sure I was staying hydrated and made, you know, making good choices while I was there. But at any rate, guys, happy to be back and have uh, another episode for you guys back to our regularly scheduled programming with, uh, I'm going to, probably butcher this last name here, but Mr. Chris Dwillett from ammo.com. He's one of their writers there. So we're going to get into all sorts of stuff about suburban prepping, uh, the stories about uh, border crossing with some of his family members and, and the difficulties that come into that. Really, really cool discussion we got lined up for you guys. I'm excited to get back in the swing of things. Before I you know, jump on over to our conversation, as always, need to say thank you to our Patreon patrons. Guys, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support. Uh, without our support from the patrons, 
we can't do some of the really, really cool stuff that we get to do. You know, the Patreon patrons are honestly out, are enabling us to make this trip to Pennsylvania next month for the uh, HTA range day to go support human trafficking awareness. And then also, you know, give us the ability to go learn from the guys at Orion training group and, you know, Chance Cooper and some of those other just awesome instructors that are out there giving courses and donating their time basically for free and all of the proceeds go to deliver fund to help combat human trafficking guys human trafficking is a huge issue and it's something i'm very very happy that that we're able to donate you know towards that cause and help hopefully fight to one day end that that problem that we all face you know in today's world so super super big thank you to our patreon patrons uh, if you guys have been following along, um, our friends over at 100 Concepts hooked all our patrons up with the new Scope Cap Pros, which is pretty badass. Uh, just as a small token of appreciation, and it's pretty it's pretty awesome. You know, the Scope Cap Pros aren't coming out until like the first week of September, and our patrons already have them at hand. Uh, I had just gotten up to camp, and I was getting messages on social media from people, "Hey, got my cap. Thank you so much. This is awesome." Really, really cool that we're able to do that for the patrons. So if you guys are looking to get on the uh, inside scoop for the next big drop, head over to patreon.com. Sign up for our Patreon page, and hey, who knows? Uh, maybe come Christmas time, there'll be something else that's dropping that's new and exciting, and you may get included in that one. Who knows? Only time will tell. Um, but we are also a sponsored podcast. And man, we have some really, really exciting news to share with you guys, uh, which has kind of already been put out there. Um, if you follow us on social media, you probably already saw the post uh, of me sharing some binocular night vision and things like that. So, you know, cat's kind of, um, <laughs> I guess, out of the bag. But do want to officially make the announcement here on the pod that we are now partnering, uh, <clears throat> in air quotes, officially with Custom Night Vision. Guys, they are now a supporter here. They are now a partner with us here at Prepared Mindset. And Custom Night Vision is an outstanding company, guys. Head over to customnightvision.com and check out everything they have. If you are just getting into night vision or just wading your toe into the pool of night vision, they have everything you could need and more. If you're looking for a beginner setup, they have a ton of different options for PVS 14s or Tonto units, you know, single tubes, one eye, usually a little bit more affordable. They have dual tubes, quad tubes. If you're just looking to ball out as hard as you possibly can, they sell helmets, they sell mounts, they sell lights, they have ear pro. Guys, I went through them at the beginning of the year. Uh, I found their their prices to be the absolute lowest in market for my Steiner D-Ball A3. That's why I went through them. And when I say lowest in market, it wasn't like 100 bucks or $200. They were like four or $500 lower than any other site I found. And that's why I went with them. Had an amazing customer experience. Actually had some shipping issue and had to reach out and talk to them directly. They were very polite. They were very accommodating. Left me with a very positive experience. Could not recommend them more to folks and was super, super happy that we were able to uh, kind of get together and work things out and and create this, this awesome partnership. Uh, and now, <laughs> would you look at it? I Not even a year after getting into my first PVS 14, now they hooked me up with some awesome 1431 binos, uh, Elbit White Phosphor. Uh, you know, I think White Phosphor is kind of the way and they have a 
a ton of different options. You guys can head over to the site and check it out. They have BNVDs. They got RNVGs. Like I said, PVS-14s. They have bridges and stuff. If you want to try and do that goofy shit where you put the thermal and the PVS-14 together, they stock Surefire. They stock ModLite. When I say they have anything and everything you need to be effective with night vision, I'm not kidding, you guys. Head on over to customnightvision.com and check out what they got going on. And I promise you their prices are, if not the lowest, ultra competitive. Great, great company and super excited to be working with them going forward. Uh, thank you as well uh, to our friends over at HRT Tactical Gear. Guys, I've been running their LBAC carrier. They sent that up to me uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's one of, as far as I know, one of the only offerings on the market that's using that Tigris Cummerbund. I know there's a few others out there, but I love this thing so far. The adjustable back panels on it, they spread the weight out just perfectly. You know, I wore it for four and a half hours uh, during a training session with the guys, and I honestly, I felt great. No problems, no fa- no muscle fatigue, no hot spots. Absolutely outstanding option. They also have their their rack plate carrier or their A track options. They their belt, their arc belt line. I know a lot of people are running that. Love their mag pouches. I I moved out of my Kiwis for some of their mag pouches that out of the box have the. I mean, like so buttery smooth, just perfect amount of retention. Absolutely great stuff going on there. You guys head on over to hrttacticalgear.com and check out everything they have going on. As I mentioned earlier, we have to say a huge thank you to our friends over at 100 Concepts, not only for taking such good care of our Patreon patrons, but for taking such good care of us. Guys, their company motto is do good, be dangerous, live free. They're three guys. It's Pierce, Jonah, and Garrett, and they are just doing the work, man. They are developing awesome products. They're making the industry a better place. They're supporting us, which is, you know, just just badass. If you guys haven't checked out their light caps or their scope caps or their, you know, uh, pack scrim, helmet scrim, head on over to 100concepts.com or hell, you know what? You can head over to T-Rex Arms. You can head on over to Big Tech's Ordnance. Those places all stock 100 Concepts gear now, and you guys can pick some of this stuff up today. It is absolutely tip-top stuff. Love it. Super happy to be partnering with them. Head on over to their website and check it out for yourself. Also, a big thank you to LARP Labs. Guys, I don't know if you knew this, but (laughs) there are some companies out there that will void your warranty if you spray paint their equipment. Steiner. Um, so that's a big deal, right? We spend a ton of money on these things. Lasers are expensive. They're upwards of, of $1,200, $1,600 sometimes for, you know, a D ball or something. So we don't want, we don't want that. We don't want to have to deal with that. Additionally, if you live someplace like Michigan, like I do, the weather is changing all the time. That's where LARP Labs 3M vinyl wraps comes in. You can change it with the seasons. They have all kinds of different, you know, colors and patterns. If you're afraid of, you know, painting your optic, painting your laser, uh, if you're like me and you are deathly afraid of spray painting your PVS 14, this is the solution for you. Head on over to larplabs.com. You can use discount code prepared mindset for 10% off your order. They just redid all their packaging. They have instructions. Now they're redoing the website and they are always always adding new things to the menu over at the website. Head on over to larplabs.com and check out what John and team have going on today. So big, big thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and obviously all of our sponsors. Without your support, this project may not still exist. You know, we've been going for several years now. Uh, I think we passed three 
and I didn't know if we would make it three months when we started, but without your guys' support, we would not be able to do the stuff that we do. So sincerely, thank you. And if you guys are one of those, uh, you know, that likes to jump past all the, past all the sponsorship stuff, roll it on back, check out the good deals that are going on and, and hear about some pretty awesome companies that are making this podcast, uh, you know, possible. But like I said, uh, we're back to our regularly scheduled programming now that I am back and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Chris, tons of stuff to get into here. So without any kind of further delay or, you know, any more pauses in this, we're just going to stop here. We're going to get right over to my discussion with Mr. Chris Dwillett. Chris, man, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, for coming on and joining me. Hey, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you about a little bit about preparedness today. Of course. I, I think it's uh, something that we, for being a podcast that I uh, launched around that like central idea, um, I don't really end up talking about it as much as I really should. So uh, the opportunity to sit down, really kind of get into some of these things, it's it, it's sorely, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I need to get up to date on a lot of things and I need to bring it back up. So, uh, going to be a really good opportunity here for us to kind of hash through some things and, uh, and, you know, more specifically, right. Uh, through a suburban lens, uh, cause I think yeah. that's one of the things, you know, people, uh, it's really cool to, and, you know, you can romanticize behind the idea of, uh, what it would be like to be, you know, prepping for out in the woods where you have no neighbors for five miles. But, um, I don't know about you. I live in suburbia and, yep. um, I, it, yeah, it would take me about 45 minutes at a minimum to get to where I'd have more than a hundred feet between, between houses and stuff. It's just, um, it's just how the world is for the most part, you know, people flock yeah, together. It's how most people live. And, uh, I think that a lot of people who live in the suburbs kind of get ignored as far as preparedness is concerned. And uh, I think it's a really important topic to discuss. No, absolutely. I agree. Um, before we jump in, uh, why don't you go ahead real quick and just introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. Uh, well, first off, like I said, thanks for having me. My name is Chris Dwellett. I'm with the lead writer for ammo.com. Uh, my actual education is in biochemistry. Figure that one out. Uh, oh, wow. You know, one of those things where you kind of get the degree and you work in it for a while and discover that it's really not the right thing for you. So uh, I was in uh, big pharma uh, you know, for about 10 years uh, until I discovered the error of my ways. Uh, I kind of fell into another opportunity that was more of admin work. And then a friend that I met through there said, hey, check out this application for ammo.com. You should check it out. And so I went ahead and applied and uh, they picked me up as a writer. Uh, so that's where I'm at. But of course, I just uh, wasn't just a chemist who picked up a job as writing, you know, uh, firearms content. I've been a, a shooter for years uh, since I was about six. Uh, that dates me a little bit, uh, though I guess <laughs> we won't tell everybody how old I am. Uh, but uh, we'll just say it's been a long time uh, since I've been shooting. I'm former USPSA shooter, uh, so I've done the competitive circuit type thing. I was never that good. I wasn't a grandmaster or anything, but absolutely love hand loading, reloading, and of course, uh, just general preparedness, especially in today's environment. I think it's so incredibly important with everything going on. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I think we kind of get spoiled, you know, mm -hmm. given it, for so many of us, like, like we just mentioned, right. Neighbors are close together and, and by proxy, then your, your access to grocery stores, uh, corner liquor stores or, or, uh, markets and gas stations and things like that. It's all very, it's very close and convenient, which can be a good thing. Um, 
It can also well, be in bad. good times. In good times, it's a good thing, but in bad times, it presents its own challenges. Well, and we we all kind of got some taste of that a couple of years ago. You know, yep. um, <clears throat> the way people with the, with the unmentionable event. Yeah, right. With the the summer of love and the the uh-huh. stay at home orders and stuff. Yeah, uh, where things, you know, and I've and I've, I've mentioned this with other guests too. It's 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 funny how people people view preparedness. Not, and I'm not even saying people like people like us, you know, who look at it as like a holistic approach to life, but, uh, preparedness, like, Oh, Hey, we're about to be home for two weeks until this flu thing passes. So let's just go prepare and grab some supplies. And, uh, I I will never forget it. Honestly, I, I went to, um, a Meyer, uh, grocery store right i don't know if you guys have my yeah. but okay yeah, yeah. Here. Mm-hmm. um and i was like all right well you know what i'm going home to work uh and stuff let's just let's stop and pick up some things let's just make sure we got you know before everything's gone and the cartfuls of just shit that people were taking out of there like oh yeah i totally need eight 12 packs of mountain dew and six packs you know six packages of oreos and take all the bacon and all the like non just refrigerated meat and stuff. The frozen mm-hmm. stuff actually didn't really get touched. And then all the canned goods were still there. Canned goods, it rice, beans, my mind. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and then everybody found out pretty quickly, right? Um, oh yeah. It, was, it wasn't like two weeks. It was like mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> a, a long ass time. <laughs> two weeks uh, to flatten the curve. I remember that one. I'll never forget that. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. It, people sometimes have their priorities in the wrong place when it comes to preparedness. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the overall sense in the preparedness community is like, you know, you got to get out there. You got to have your 20 acres out in the woods, middle of nowhere with your spring or well, and you got your chickens and everything like that. And that's just not feasible for a lot of people. Uh, you know, kind of like what we talked about earlier, I actually looked this up. I did, I did write this statistic down because I thought it was important. Uh, but according to the 2017 census, over 52% of households describe themselves as living in a suburban environment. So that's over half of the population here in the United Mm -hmm. States. So I don't, the last thing I want is for half of the population to be like, oh, well, I'm just SOL if things go South, Uh, you know, even worse than what they did a couple of years ago. Uh, because I really don't think that's the case. And I, I kind of wanted to share a couple ideas for people uh, to really kind of understand that you really do have a pretty decent chance of survival, even in the suburbs. Yeah. And like we said, there, there's advantages. Uh, I, and it goes, I think people jump to like, oh, you got people around you, you can steal shit from, um, which I guess oh, that's, yeah. that's like one way of looking at it. If you want to be, if you want to, if you want to go from you know, normal person to, to Dick, you know, like right away and just make enemies out of everyone in your community. Um, but I think you're going to have a short lifespan if you, you take that approach, to be honest with you. Yeah. More than likely. Um, and I, I think that people, when they, when they take that, that scope, right. It's like, okay, this isn't Mad Max and you know, this is going to last more than the two hour movie that you, you saw, like, this is, you, this is the long game. This is sustainment. So, and, and like you said, there's, there's advantages and there's disadvantages. Um, so I don't know, maybe we, you can start with some of the advantages to the fact that you are in a densely populated area. Yeah. I think one of the big advantages that you have in these areas is one, you've got a dense, you know, population, not super dense, like you would maybe say in downtown, but you've got a fairly good mm-hmm. concentration of people that already identify as a community. 
Uh, and I think that is so critically important. It doesn't matter whether you're in the woods or whether you're in the suburbs or even in, you know, an apartment high rise downtown. If you have that community around you, your chances for survival are considerably more, you know, higher uh, than what they would be if you try and go lone wolf Rambo. I'm going to, you know, steal from everybody. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you this. There's a lot of two A loving people out here in, in the suburbs. And I just wouldn't recommend that uh, that you know, career choice, I suppose we could say <laughs> if the balloon goes up, I think you're going to yeah. have a pretty short career. Uh, and so having that community around you, I think is so huge because in times of crisis in the past, we've seen this where communities will come together to support each other. We saw it in Katrina. You see it in any type of disaster situation these days anymore. I mean, we just had a tornado here about a month ago. Uh, and afterwards, uh -huh. everybody was outside checking on everybody. Hey, you guys okay? You guys have power. We don't have power. What's going on? Uh, and so I think having that community around you is is so important for survival because you've got a broad selection of skill sets with people there, typically, unless you're living in a retirement community. But even then, you still have mm -hmm. a lot of different skills. Uh, you have a lot of people who, you know, can help you uh, because there's only 24 hours in the day. You can't do everything. You can't gather the firewood. You can't stand watch. You can't, you know prepare food. You can't do the laundry. I, there are so many things to be done in a situation like that. You're going to need more than just yourself to handle it. And having that community around you is such a huge benefit. Well, and I think that that a lot of people, they and, and it's probably because it's a, a sort of like what we see with mainstream news, right? The bad shit, the evil things like those, those sell clicks, you know? So mm -hmm. I think when people talk about and to a degree, because I don't think it's a hundred percent wrong, but to a degree, it's a lot easier to, to talk about, you know, uh, shit hit the fan scenarios oh, yeah. and say, you know, doom and gloom. And this is why you need to be prepared. And like I said, there's, there's some truth to all of, of those points, but to everything you just said, like in, in, in instances, it could be not quite as bad. Yeah. And I think that whole, you know, Mad Max scenario is really overdone in the prepper community. I mean, honestly, unless we're talking absolute worst case scenario, like EMP wipes out the entire United States or something like that, which is incredibly low probability. Yeah. Uh, you know, unless it's something like that, I don't see it as, you know, this, uh, you know, Fury Road type thing where we've got dudes hanging off of, you know, semi trailers wearing spike armor and stuff like that, like you see in the movies. It's just the movies, guys. I don't think it's going to be like that at all. Now, is it possible? Yes. But I agree with you. I think a lot of things are sensationalized to get attention, uh, especially here in the prepper community. You see it all the time, especially on YouTube thumbnails, things like that. They're trying to get your views. And that's OK. I get it. it and if it gets somebody to start preparing, then that's a good thing. But I don't think that you should be focused on this whole like, oh, it's going to be like Mad Max and we're going to be, you know, uh, you know, in a hole in the ground somewhere or you know, you're going to have to bug out or something like that. Most disasters that we're going to encounter in our life, the higher probability stuff, mm -hmm. it's not going to be like that at all. No. And like you said, there's, there's a, a usually right. You got a dense uh, population, which also means a diverse range of skill sets, which means you don't have to have all the tools, all the supplies. Like there's a, you know, if you have a neighbor who is a contractor or owns a construction company, there's a better than good chance that, you know, they, they have, saws they have nail guns and hammers and things like exactly. that and they're going to know how to build shelters or additional storage spaces uh you know if you need to 
take advantage of something like that. If you have a neighbor who's a doctor or a nurse. And I think sometimes that's the, you know, again, we look at some of like the rural preparedness, at least that, that perspective, right? We look at that and go, oh, you're going to have to, you know, medical, you're going to have to know, you know, you, you are responsible for all of those things because there's just nobody close to you. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, that is a big advantage. Um, it's also one of the things we talk about a lot here is, you know, and it's difficult, but building a network, having people that in the event this stuff happens, you can reach out to pull people together. Everyone has that shared expertise, um, you know, in things like shooting, prepping to some extent, but then everybody has their individual areas where, hey, you're a mechanic during the day, you're a doctor during the day, you're a carpenter, uh, you're a cook, you know, everybody has those additional skill sets that when you bring it together is how the group's going to benefit and how you're going to survive uh, you know, through all of that. Yeah. I wanted to touch on building that network because I think this is something that's scary for a lot of people. I know that, you know, some people, especially in the prepper community are like, Oh, well, you know, OPSEC, right. I got to keep all my stuff secret. I can't tell yeah. anybody what I've got. Uh, and you're like, how can I build a network if we don't talk about these things? And I, I had this kind of revelation last October uh, that really kind of gave me a lot of hope that, yeah, there are solutions to this. And so my recommendation, if you're looking to get out there in your community and start networking, is walk your dog. And you be like, okay, Chris, what in the world are you talking about? Yeah. I have a I have a female German shepherd and I walk her religiously three times a day. I've had people stop me and tell me that they can set their clock based on when I'm walking the dog uh, or <laughs> that their dogs always bark when we come by and they know that it's me. But what really did it was on Halloween last year, I was taking my then 10-year-old out. We were walking and I, of course, I didn't bring the dog uh, for that because she would have been going nuts, like with everybody in costumes and stuff like that. She would have been going crazy. I'm like, you know what? It's just best that we leave her at home, relax. Every house I stopped at was like, hey, where's your dog? I see you walking every day. Where's the dog at? And it just kind of hit me. Everybody in the neighborhood knows me. And even if it's just the guy who walks the German Shepherd, right? And it could be any dog. Don't think you have to get a GSD, but you know, it could be, uh, you know, the the Schnauzer or you know, the the Labrador or whatever dog you have. Mm -hmm. You're the person that walks the dog, right? And everybody knows that. And so, in a situation where maybe comms are down uh, or you know we have a disaster and we need to organize, at least people know who you are, and you're not some random person knocking on the door saying, Hey, we're going to go tr get gathered together in the park and figure out what we're going to do. You're like, oh, I don't know who you are. Uh, but if you've been walking your dog all that time and people know who you are, that immediately gives you some clout, so to speak, as being a resident of that neighborhood and people know who you are. And so if you're really shy, uh, if you don't want to just reach out and say, you know, your neighbor, Hey, Bob, how are you prepping for the apocalypse? Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, this is a great strong. way to yeah. this is a great way to break that ice without having to be super awkward with it. Yeah, no, and it's uh, just being involved in your community. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we do at least here we do social districts every other week that the city oh, nice. sponsors, and even just going to those, you meet people. Um, I found that actually just talking to your local business owners who mm -hmm. have their ear to the ground on everything. Uh, can fill in so many gaps on, you know, who's doing what, what kind of businesses are coming in uh, or moving out or trying to come in or why certain things are or aren't happening. Uh, I mean, people talk, you know, and yeah. those fixtures uh, for us, there's one, it's a, it's a bakery. Uh, the guy that runs it, <clears throat> he talks to everybody. So gotcha. we go in there, you get the earful, but like you get 
like you really you leave there knowing a whole lot more than you walked in and it's sometimes overlooked but it could be a really you know i think a valuable tool in in terms of you know preparing yourself it really can and i'll tell you just walking around your neighborhood all the time you get a good sense of where people lie on on the spectrum of preparedness and you know what their feelings are uh, you know, which direction they lean left or right uh, in, in a disaster oh, yeah. ain't going to make any difference. I'll tell you that much, but it does give you some sense of maybe who's already practicing some of those skills you might need uh, and who's maybe has different skills. Maybe you're walking by and be like, wow, Sally's got a freaking garden back there. She knows what she's doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And in a scenario where maybe we're going to have to looking at something long-term, uh, you know, okay, we need to talk to Sally about uh, getting the gardens together around the neighborhood. What do we need to do? That sort of thing. Uh, And then uh, another couple of good ways to do things. If your community doesn't have a Facebook page, I know a lot of people don't like the platform, but it is great for networking. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you don't have one, uh, you be the one to start it. Uh, Just be like, hey, we're starting up a community Facebook group. Here's the link. Would love to have you join. Put out flyers, something like that. And then you don't actually even have to talk to people all that much. Makes it really easy. And then the other thing I'd suggest is if you have a, con- a community that's somewhat established and you don't have like a, uh, a community watch type program going on, a lot of the local police office or offices rather will, you know, put a presentation for you, tell you guys what to do, where to go. And again, that gives you some ideas of who's concerned about security in the neighborhood and who isn't. Uh, and so when if things go bad, you're like, OK, I need to go over to John's house. He's on the watch with me. Uh, and it also gives you a little bit of an in with the local police department. They can kind of tell you uh, what's going on too, uh, not just the local baker. Oh yeah, no. I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, people want to jump towards. Well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people are on this this whole anti police train, and it's like, well, on one hand, I get what you're saying, but on the other hand, you know, in your community, these are people that are out there. You may not agree with how they. I don't know, handle suspects or whatever, but that completely separate. Like these are people who are on the streets all the time talking to all the local businesses. They're talking to residents. They see the things you don't, you know, they're out mm-hmm. there patrolling when you're sleeping or hanging out in your backyard. Uh, so use the police. I mean, whether you like them or not, like they're, they're still a good resource. Um, you know, personally, I, I, I support uh, you know, I back oh, the yeah. blue. I that's just my belief. I know there's a lot of people in this community that are very, very against that, and that's cool. That's your your thing too. Uh, but there's resources there. Like you said, there's a ton that the police can do to help you with, and uh, and or at least be like a jumping off point to establishing you know a better network or finding people around you. Like you said, for a neighborhood watch or something that um, you know just care as much as you do, and maybe in that you find out, hey, oh, cool, you you're concerned too. You, you got body armor. Do you have night vision? Like, Oh, cool. Hey, we can hang out more now. Like, great. This is awesome. Um, there's like, let's, let's talk gear. Right. Because if there's one thing preppers like to do is talk gear. That's true to a fault. (laughs) That is definitely. Yeah. But no, Uh, I I agree with you completely. You know, at ammo.com, we're a hundred percent, uh, you know, back in the blue, we definitely believe in all of our first responders, uh, and we do our best to support them as best we can. And, uh, it, it's a great resource. These, you know, men and women are putting their lives on the line every day uh, to protect uh, and, you know, serve the community as best they can. Like you said, maybe some people don't agree with their tactics, but, uh, you know, they're doing their job as best they can and they need to get home to their wife and kids or, you know, their family just as much as you do. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, when we look at it again, comparing kind of the rural to suburban here, mm-hmm. 
if you're on the more open areas, not that the police there or your sheriff, constable, whatever have you, uh, aren't as plugged in, but obviously there's there's usually less of them and they usually have a, a much larger area to cover. So oh, yeah. uh, they may they may have less information for you. Um, obviously, there's not really going to be a neighborhood watch if you're, you know, five miles <laughs> apart. The response times, if you did need their assistance for anything, what be it a, a, a break in or if there's a home fire, you know, those are all things where you're you're looking at much longer response times. Those those are the kinds of things that that make living, you know, in the suburban areas of the country, right, more advantageous. But <clears throat> there's also a lot of disadvantages, okay. um, you know, for all the pros that come with it. You know, that neighbor that owns guns, it could hang out with you and train with you, maybe, or uh, just be part of the neighborhood watch program. We keep you know referencing that there could also be some less desirable people who, you know, also have firearms who are. I, I I've still yet to, to to come up with a better term to describe them than just fuds, and I don't like that word because it's it's just really derogatory to people that they may not even not they may not know what they don't know. But in a lot of cases, they just own firearms. They go mag dump into piles of trash, and they're generally some of the least prepared people I've met. Um, even in the good times, like hey, you want to go hit the range? I got to hit the store and buy some ammo. Like you don't have any ammo? Cool, bro. Go for it for sure. Yeah, mag dumping into the trash. They they just aren't <laughs> they aren't well prepared for the instances, right? Where they could, I mean, even it doesn't have to be a ton. You know, I think that if you just keep one or two loaded AR mags, whether it's a twenty rounder or a thirty rounder, or whatever, that sh- that typically is enough for home defense purposes. You know, and, and it always just bo- you know boggles my mind. People that like, oh yeah, I just buy it as I need it. I'm like, doesn't make a whole ton of sense do you always like leave your car on empty and just go put five bucks in it at a time and i mean my mom does that and it drives me insane uh i know those people exist um but not everybody who's pro 2a is necessarily going to be an ally in the event that something you know something goes goes sideways um so that's got to be a consideration right i mean um with a with a denser population that that's also a variable that gets mixed into into what's going on right it's something you definitely want to be aware of, uh, you know, in your community. And I think that, again, if, if you're getting out there, you're walking around, you're talking with people, I think you're going to kind of have an idea of who the bad apples are going to be ahead of time. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you want to stockpile ammo, don't hesitate to check us out uh, at ammo.com. Uh, if you'd like, I have a free coupon for your listeners, if uh, you'd like me to share that with yeah. them. Go for it. Uh, so it's just ammo.com forward slash Chris, C-H-R-I-S. Uh, get your free $20 off coupon uh, for all of your listeners. So I really appreciate that. Uh, oh, but badass. yeah, you're going you're gonna to have those people who are like, oh, I'll pick my ammo up the range. And not only is that more expensive, uh, it just doesn't help your situation at all. Uh, sure, you know, you're supporting your local range, but you're not really supporting your preparedness. So uh, making sure you're stocked up on that, a great thing. And you know, as far as less than desirable people in your neighborhood, I think that, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, I think nature will take its course uh, with those types mm-hmm. of folks. Uh, I think I, I don't want to say that people are inherently good, because I, if there's one thing I've learned in my life, it's not necessarily always the, the case. But yeah. I think that if you have good intentions and you're genuine, uh, you know, and a good person at heart, that uh, people will, you know, flock to that they will be attracted to that and you'll find like-minded people in your community that will make sure that everybody stays safe. Well, and it's just one more reason, right? You should be 
out in your community. Um, and, and that's not to say you got to be, <clears throat> you know, out there glad handing with everybody. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, kissing hands not, and making babies and everything. But like, we're not rubbing, we're not running a political campaign here. Yeah. But I mean, you should at least know your immediate neighbors, yeah. be on a first name basis with them, try and talk to them, uh, develop that rapport and those relationships so that at the very, at, and this is my opinion, you know, at bare minimum, you know, those are the people you're going to, you know, reach out to when anything weird happens, even now, you know, lose power, text the neighbor, like, hey, Bill, you got power? Like, did something happen to my house or, you know, or text the, the, you know, people across the street, because for whatever reason, that's a thing here. One side of the street can lose power and the other one won't. I don't know why it's oh, stupid, yeah. but, you know, so even for basic stuff like that, where it's just, I mean, like a mild inconvenience more than mm-hmm. it is an emergency, it's good to have those connections there. And for those people to know that likewise, they can trust you, they can reach out to you in times of need and that you're there for the community regardless of the size of you know what what we mean when we say community yeah i think that's really important just to have those basic connections already made before anything goes down because the last thing you're going to want to do is trying to convince people that you're a good person when uh when things are rough uh so having those when when everyone's saying they're a good person (laughs) uh uh-huh yeah uh at that point you got to be a really good judge of character and i know from history i'm not the best at that so i'll leave my wife to that uh those decisions (laughs) but uh you know Knowing ahead of time really helps. Uh, just making those connections, having that ready to go can save you a lot of, you know, difficulty uh, when things do get tough. Uh, and just having somebody that you can call on and be like, hey, did I leave the garage door open uh, is really nice to have. I, I remember one time I had uh, a neighbor who uh, texted me at work. He's like, hey, did, did you leave your front door open on purpose? I'm like, no, my dad obviously forgot to close it when he oh uh, walked the dog. Uh, so he's like, don't worry about it. I'll go in there. I'll close it for you. I uh, just want to make sure you guys are okay. And you know, that's such a great thing to have, uh, you know, because I would have gotten home. I would have seen the door open. I'd be like, okay, guess we're clearing the house. Uh, you know, and now I didn't have to go and do that. Uh, so it was really helpful. Yeah. And I've, I've had to do that a bunch. Like, Hey, um, can you just walk over and, and make sure I'd locked my car door or something or like same thing. Uh, Hey, can you just go hit the keypad and close the garage if it's yeah. open? Um, it, it just the peace of mind alone, you know, it, it's worth it for even the little stuff like that. But obviously in these bad situations, it it's worth its weight in gold. It is. And, and you think about it, we always talk about in the prepper community, right? Like the golden horde, right? You know, the people's pouring out of the cities and things like that. Again, I don't think it's going to happen unless we get into something incredibly serious, uh, you know, like I referenced earlier. But if something like that were to happen, having those connections ahead of time where you can just be like, hey, I heard down the street they burned the Walmart down. Uh, what mm-hmm. are we going to do? Uh, you know, what? what's the plan here? Because we need to we need to get together here because the last thing I want is for them to burn down our house here and especially your house. Uh, you know, so what can we do to kind of organize uh, and in a stressful situation like that, you definitely want to know who you can trust and who you can't. Uh, and doing that now is so critical. Well, and, and and how you can prepare even, let's say, even short term, right? Like what we saw in the news a couple of years ago to help with oh, yeah. writing these things out. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had friends reach out to me. Now, we know it, it never went anywhere, but I had friends reach out to me like, hey, um, in this instance, OK, they own they own a car dealership and it's not very far down Woodward from downtown Detroit. Okay. They were concerned when things started to get kind of weird. Like, Hey, if something happens, like what, 
what do we, you know, what would you do? What can we do? Like, I, you know, the police are going to be busy and everything. Like it's on the, I think they saw some of the T-Rex arm stuff. Like, Hey, those guys are hanging out at a, you know, can you guys come do that? You know, uh, I don't know, man. Um, let's just give it a day and see if it gets that, if it gets any closer to you, um, mm-hmm. which it didn't thank God, but yeah, we've seen God. on the news and stuff like people, people turn into animals, you know, they just, uh, whether it's just acting out or looting, or you're actually in a situation where you're trapped in one of those uh, shop, Chaz, whatever. Where Chaz you, shop. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> where you know you're literally stuck there, and you can't. They won't let EMTs in, so you're cut off from all medical. Um, so if you have a kid, you know who's uh, diabetic or asthmatic or something, right? What do you do uh, when they're fighting? For, you know, and, and killing each other for food and basic you know necessities um it's 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 something to to at least consider and a lot of people kind of write this off as yeah it'll never happen like well until it does and it did right yeah no there's a lot there there is and there there definitely is a a nasty part of society that we don't often see until the situation presents itself where they can act out uh and we saw that obviously with the summer of love as we like to say Uh, And the mostly peaceful protests, uh, you know, weren't necessarily that peaceful. And, you know, we we see this time and time again, that there there is an an undercurrent in our society that definitely does not have the betterment of society at the forefront of their priorities. Uh, And they're really just looking out for themselves. And these are definitely people that you need to be aware of uh, and be prepared for. And I'm not saying you got to, you know, Join, make your whole neighborhood a militia or something like that. Uh, but like I said, knowing who you can trust beforehand uh, and just having that uh, that group in your mind, at least like, OK, if things go down, I know that these three people are pretty squared away. I'm going to go to their house first and be like, hey, you know, bro, we got to we got to figure something out. Uh, you know, let, let's try and get everybody together and have a discussion on what we want to do. Uh, having that ahead of time. And that gives you more hands to start having people going to everybody's house and be like, Hey, let's have a community meeting. Let's try and get together and figure out a solution for this to make sure that we're all safe and we make it through. And a lot of people were doing things just like that, you know, um, during the toilet paper shortages and, and oh, yeah. diapers. I know I had, we had friends that would text us or we had a group going cause we had friends that had newborn twins. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, just so you guys know this Costco has diapers and toilet paper. Um, I don't know how much is going to be left, but if you hurry up, you know, so I remember my wife jumping out of bed at like at nine 30 or 10 o'clock or something and, and running down the street to the Costco and getting some. And it, it just, it was, it was that just that really, really shitty human behavior where people were buying six packages of toilet paper, you know, at first, yeah. or, you know, 20 cases of water and it's, yeah, ridiculous. you know, uh, well, and that's the thing is like, I don't hate people for wanting to have it but i kind of hate on people for not having to waiting to the last minute minute. so then people you know then there's less to go around and it becomes an issue and then you do get those people that start to get violent over some base necessities uh things like (laughs) like fucking toilet paper you know i I mean all things to fight over but it it happened and uh you know and and even just water in general there's the assumption that we'll always have access to running water Oh yeah. But it, it you know it could not. I mean, with the infrastructure problems we have in this country, for being as great as we are a lot of things, uh hell, I was just out of town last week. My wife texted me, "Hey, water main down the street broke, so I'm without water." 
And that happens uh, at least a couple times a year here, just because our infrastructure and our old pipes are kind of crappy. Yeah. I mean, we can talk to the people up in Flint about how they're doing with the water system up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, being ready to prepare and purify water is so important uh, in any type of survival situation. And it doesn't take a lot to do it. And if you can help somebody do that, that's someone who could be on your side later if things go, <laughs> you know, get a lot worse. So, you know, all you got to do is honestly buy a couple boxes of pool shock and put it in your garage and you have bleach for days uh, with that. So, I, I'm not going to go into the big chemical talk about percentages and and things like that. That's that's a topic for another time, and I need to get my notes lined up on that. Uh, but just remember that uh, waterborne pathogens kill with boring regularity. Uh, and if you've ever played the old game, the Oregon Trail, you remember that you died of dysentery. Oh, yeah. Everybody died of dysentery. Was- I know, and <laughs> it's because it's a big killer when you don't have modern medicine around, and all you have to do is you have to. Uh, sterilize and purify your water. And like I said, if you can help your neighbor in a time of need to do that, that is so much more valuable than be like, well, that's one less person I got to worry about. Uh, having an ally, in my Dark opinion, is that. Yeah. It, it re- it's kind of the nasty way to look at it. And I know that some people in the prepper community think that way. And I would just encourage you to start thinking of it as how can I help this person so that maybe later down the line when I need help, they might be able to come to my aid. Yeah. And it's not even, well, I guess it's, it's the, you know, the pathogens in the water and it, even if it doesn't kill you, it can also, it can create a lot of issues that could either a later on kill you, or at the very least make life really uncomfortable. You know, I've heard mm-hmm. stories of guys that, you know, uh, when they were deployed, drank some gnarly water, and then all of a sudden half your units got the runs and it's like, okay, so now you're non-combat effective. You can't go stand post because you're gonna shit yourself and uh which leads to hygiene problems for everybody Mm -hmm. else uh there's just there's so much that comes up like uh, and 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 that's the thing bottled water is super cheap pool shock is it's not the most expensive thing in the world but if you're looking at how little you have to use to to uh sanitize right that that large amount of water when you do the math on that it actually it works out as pretty not expensive you know so just start setting aside water and, you know, you'd be in a pretty good shape, you know, uh, it's not that it's not like we're asking you to stock gold bullion. So you have yeah. something to barter with when things get real weird. Honestly, if if it goes down and we get to that point where we are in a barter economy, that's the last thing I'm going to be worrying about. Uh, you know, well, if it get, <laughs> if it gets that bad, uh, we've got bigger problems we need to be concerned of. And that's like, well, we got to make sure that the seeds are in the ground. Right. Uh, but, yeah. you know not going too far off on a tangent. Uh, you know, it, it's so, it's such a simple thing to do now. And you have so much storage space, typically, especially if you live in the suburbs, then you would say in an apartment or something like that. It's really yeah. easy just to go like now when there's, you know, not a disaster scenario going on, uh, you know, go buy yourself like three cases of water from Costco or Sam's or something like that. And just put it under the bed, uh, you know, put it somewhere that's cool and dry, not in the garage. Uh, especially if you live where I do in in central Indiana, it gets ridiculously hot here in the summer. Uh, You know, it's put it in a a place that it's not going to get smoked and uh, you shouldn't have any of that leaching of the plastic or anything like that. So uh, just have that on hand. It really helps. And if you do have to, you know, tap into something like a retention pond in your neighborhood or a stream or something like that, 
uh, do everything you can to help your neighbors around to get that purified. I have a friend who uh, was actually an EOD tech attached to an SF unit, and he kind of did what you were talking about, having some of that gnarly water that wasn't necessarily purified oh, all the way. Yikes. Basically said he cut a hole in the bottom of his pants because it was just took too long to get them down uh, to give you an idea. And, and that means yeah. you are not effective at all at that point. So even if you, and trust me from the chemistry medical point, uh, Imodium is not going to help you in that case uh, because it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And I've had this before I was in Colombia once on a mission trip and the, uh, the missionaries that we stayed, <clears throat> excuse me, spent time with, cooked with the local water and failed to mention that to us. Uh, and so I got, uh, you know, a bout of it and you can take all the emodium you want. And it doesn't do anything because all that does is it helps with the fluid imbalance and not necessarily the flora that's going on down there. Uh, right, so, right. you know, how long, that, an, how long does it take to work through something like that too? Good couple days for sure. Yeah. At a minimum, if you're in a good environment and you can have clean water to kind of help clear things out, uh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's still, if you don't, uh, it, it ain't ever going to clear out and that's, you know, game over. You died of dysentery. Uh, but, um, you know, if you're in, if you have a clean environment that you can, you know, keep yourself, you know, in good shape and rehydrate and things like that, it's still going to take a couple days to run its course. If it's just, uh, some of that, if it's like crypto, uh, Spiridium or Giardia, it's going to be longer and it's going to be worse. Yeah. And that's, and it's, it, it seems like such an easy thing, you know, because, mm -hmm bottled water is so cheap and we get it at the tap and you know i got a brita pitcher in the sink and it's like yep. like oh yeah no it's it's just no big deal i think we a lot of people write it off um yep. certainly not as many people in this community uh i think we see a lot of guys starting to look at things like the tablets for purification or life straws or whatever um and all good stuff to have oh, yeah. uh, as long as you actually have it when you need it and build it into your gear uh that's good how to use it yeah and that's good for you but if you're talking about how you're going to make the unit, the group, the team, the community, whatever, stay effective, um, you're really going to be starting to think on a much larger scale. Like, ah, life straw is great. Ah, life straw is not going to work for 50 people. Uh, yeah. yeah. For an extended period of time. And, you know, to your point about storage, like it's not, it doesn't take up that much room. They stack on each other real nice. Um, hell, you can buy. Uh, I remember we had a lady that I used to, before we got sent home, I had a lady that I worked with that brought in a 50 pound bag of rice. Oh, <laughs> she was yeah. going to donate it for a food drive and they wouldn't take it because they didn't want to oh, wow. carry it. <laughs> so she left <laughs> it under her desk and she would have like half a cup of rice, like every other day or something like she just, that would be her snack or something. Yeah. And when we went home, I mean, she had had that thing for like a solid six months and she still probably had at least half the bag there. Oh, you yeah, know, it'll like, last a while. Yeah, rice goes a long way, and that's one sack, you know, or a sack mm -hmm. of beans. Like, if you take, it, it sucks. There's no, you know, denying it. If you take some of the comfort out of the food and just look at the bare survivability of it, rice, beans, and water can get you a long way. Um, yeah. Now that that shouldn't be your whole diet, but that certainly can be become some staples if you really had to. Yeah, yeah. I variety in your diet is always incredibly important. And if you're prepping and you're getting ready for food, I'd recommend some spices and salt and, and things like that to be added to your preps as well, uh, just for some variety to make it uh, a little more palatable. But yeah, you can get a long way with not a lot of money. So, you know, people who are like, oh, I, I don't have money to prep, uh, you know, five gallon buckets, mylar bags, beans, rice, 
oxygen absorbers. That's all you need. And those are really inexpensive things to get right now. They store very well in your closets uh, and you can put all sorts of things on top of them and just kind of forget that you have it. And then if things go south and you need it, you've got it and you've got a good 25, 30 years of shelf life on those. So you can tap into it later uh, and just replenish those stores. And I know you can't see it because we're on a podcast, but I've got like a uh, like a breakfast bar next to me here. And we've got about seven, eight cases of water here just, you know, for use when we need it. Uh, the wife likes it. But uh, when it's yeah. time to replenish it, we just go to Costco, buy four more and we're good. Yeah. And and again, that's one of the, the benefits about being in a suburban area is that that's all very, very accessible, not only yep. for you, but for all your neighbors. And where things are plentiful, that usually means that the prices are lower. Um, and demand. Uh, well, you would you would hope anyways. I mean, things lately not been so great, but yeah. hopefully that means you're able to get to a store and you can buy, like you said, slightly more palatable meals. Um, one of my favorite things is hearing about these guys that go out and drop like $600 on cases of MREs. Yeah, that's not and the way to go. It's like, that's good for a couple days. Um, mm-hmm. People don't realize, like I didn't realize this. I'd have a friend in the military explain to me, like those are literally designed to make sure you don't poop. So like, that's lovely. It, it's well, I'm like, it makes sense. No, that's not a thing. They're like, cause they want me to, they want me to try one of some kind of like weird burrito or something. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not shitting my pants for the next three days. No, thank you. <laughs> and they go, Oh no, no, this is an MRE dude. These like, you won't shit. Like, what are you talking about? They go, yeah, there's like this gum that you chew so that you can go to the bathroom afterwards. Cause they don't want you hmm. to have to go to the field. And I'm like, that's, amazing um and horrifying scary uh, at the same time right yeah exactly so people think that they're just going to buy a, a case of mres from the local surplus store like well for one i would make sure i check the dates on all of those but b it's not long-term effective uh and you're missing a lot of nutrients you're missing a lot of the things that you really do need to stay healthy like your body will not respond well to a diet of <laughs> only mres um there's yeah, a lot of support that too. Yeah, it's a great stopgap measure. It's something that you can have quick that you can easily throw into a bug out bag. But if that's your only food prep, then I think you're missing out on a lot. And it's going to cost you way more than it should. MREs are not cheap. Uh, they are very expensive when things when you compare it to other staples, mm-hmm. like we talked about rice, beans, water, uh, very simple things. But, you know, I would say biggest prep in my mind is water because, you know, the, the typical rule of three, right? You can survive three minutes without air, relatively speaking, uh, three yeah. days without water, same thing, and three weeks without food. Now, those are not going to be a very comfortable three days or three weeks, but uh Water is considerably more important uh, than food, and you can definitely last a lot longer with water. Uh, but yeah, if, if you're going to be prepping food, which you should, um, make sure you got some variety in there. MREs are fine, but don't blow your whole paycheck on it. Yeah, I mean, and especially, again, if we're looking in the scope of a, a suburban environment like this, you really wouldn't, you really shouldn't need to. Um, you, you would, I, you know, probably have more access to storage, uh, deep freezers, right? Yep. Different, um, I guess, apparatus, right, for cooking. So I think I know every one of my neighbors has a grill. And with those grills, every one of them has a propane tank. And there's about 20 places within a 15-minute drive that all do either exchanges on propane or refills on propane. So, you know, you don't have to worry about, oh, I'm only cooking over an open flame that I you know, it's only going to get so big. I can only cook so much. You, you, I mean, yes, you could look at it as kind of a, 
a posh thing or a bougie thing, but like, yes, we have access to propane cooking. We have access to, if you have a generator that runs off a small amount of gas or something, you can run your home oven. Things are, we're not out in the wild where we're in, you know, civilized world. So maybe some of that, you know, uh, I don't half a cow that your neighbor has in the freezer or lamb that they got or something, you can cook that. And that could last you several days if prepared right and stored correctly, you know, really not a need for the MRE diet. Ever. Yeah. Propane is such a great fuel for storage. I mean, basically has an unlimited shelf life. Uh, you know, if you store it in those tanks and they're not sitting out outside all the time, uh, you pretty much can, those things will stay stable for longer than you will. Uh, so propane, yeah. a great option, honestly. And a lot of those generators or flex fuel as well can run off propane as also, uh, so something definitely to look into for some, you know, cross, uh, you know, compatibility between your systems, uh, to really kind of help you through uh, a tough time. But yeah, propane, a great option. Uh, gas is just fine too. It's loud as all get out, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, but there's, there's just, there's options. You know, I think yeah, when we, sure. we look at prepping in terms of getting off the grid or bugging out, it's very much about how can I create a flame? you know, for mm-hmm. heat or for cooking, uh, you know, out of twigs and, you know, a ferro rod in the back of my knife, which is all really valuable stuff as well. I'm not <laughs> anybody listening to this freaking out right now about to send me an angry message. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that given the choice between pressing a button to start your grill or fighting to start a fire, because anybody who's done it knows it takes like a good 20 minutes like you can't just throw a pile of sticks together like you got to start with some real small ones and add some bigger ones like and i'm really bad at it i'm really impatient i always go too fast too quickly and end up using the lighter anyway um i I mean i'll I'll own that i I have no shame i mean a little bit but it it is what it is uh so this is a benefit you know why not embrace it and again, we were talking about time usage, right? Uh, a much better time just pushing the button and getting the grill started as it is taking 20 minutes or, you know, an hour, if you haven't practiced it a lot, uh, getting a fire started. Uh, so, you know, if you're more efficient with your time with cooking, it means you've got more time to do other things like getting your neighborhood fortified, patrolling, uh, you know, making sure your neighbors are okay, that sort of thing, tending the garden, whatever it may be, uh, you know, having that efficiency, we shouldn't just shy away from it and be like, no, I'm not going to do that because, you know, I've got my, I've got my ferro rod and uh, I know how to start a fire. Well, that that's great. But you know, how long is it going to take you to do that? How long is it going to take you to gather the firewood? Oh, I've already cooked my meal and you're still gathering the firewood. Exactly. Well, and if you're really bad at it, you could end up going through all of your Tinder and mm-hmm. all, all of your fuel and still end up without a fire. And (laughs) wasted all that tinder, all that time. And what have you got to show for it? Uh, Nothing. And just you're pissed off at that point. Yep. You're, you're hungry, you're cold and you're pissed off, which a combination. Exactly. Which a shows the advantage of what we're talking about, but B also highlights the importance. Like if you are somebody who's in a rural area, go practice that stuff, you know, like don't just use a, you know, lighter fluid and a, a, a map gas torch, you know, like and some cardboard or something. Um, learn how to do it, practice it. You know, it sucks failing like that sucks, but you don't get better at it unless you actually try and practice, um, you know, have that skill set available when you get there. Otherwise you really are screwed. Failure is the best teacher. I, I can say this from my USPSA experience. Uh, we all think that we're freaking John wick before that beep goes off. 
Uh, and then the the beep happens yeah. and your mind just goes out the window. Uh, now, obviously, that's a little bit different than starting a fire, but it's the same concept. Until you inoculate yourself to that stress, to that difficult environment, you're not going to be able to rise to the moment uh, when you need it, uh, rise to the occasion. So, yeah, definitely go out and practice those things if that's your plan. Obviously, bug out is worst case scenario. In my opinion, we should not be planning to bug out because all of your supplies are going to be in your domicile. Uh, yeah. Your first, unless you absolutely have to go, uh, you should try and stay in your home as long as possible because it is 20 times more difficult than you think it is to bug out. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it really should be your, your last, last case, your last uh, option. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually it, maybe this is a good point to shift gears here. Cause one of the other things yeah, we sure. want to talk about was you have family, right. That had to, mm-hmm. I guess for all terms and purposes here, they, they, they had to bug out of Ukraine given everything that was going on is still going on. Um, and it's, when we say bug out, I think people just think about their big backpack and how they're gonna go hide out in the woods for a couple of days. Oh, yeah. uh, it's it's going to be easy. Cause ain't nothing lasts more than a couple of days in our minds. Um, and that isn't always the, the case. Like, you know, Ukraine is a perfect example of something that could have ended in a couple weeks, clearly has not ended, um, continues to be an ongoing conflict. Now, uh, one of the things that you'd share is you have family that was, is from Ukraine. Right. And I guess I'll, I'll let you tell the story, um, rather than try and narrate it through myself. <laughs> No, no, for sure. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, just a little background. Uh, I married my wife. She's from Ukraine. Uh, I married her in 2018. I met her in November 2016. Uh, we dated for a while. I brought her over here to the United States legally on a K-1 fiance visa. Uh, her parents obviously stayed in Ukraine. Uh, her mm-hmm. father passed away. And I would say it's probably good because I, he would be not happy with the current situation. Let's put it that way. Uh, but her mother was still there. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, the moment when it all started. If I'm not mistaken, it was February 22nd uh, of 2022. Uh, you know, my wife comes to me crying. She says that there's explosions going off all over Ukraine. I'm like, what in the world's going on? Right. So right. her mother was there. Uh, and I actually kind of have two bug out stories for you. Uh, and so definitely a couple different lessons, because there was the t- getting her out of Ukraine to Poland and then me bringing her from Poland back to the United States. Uh, but yeah, so she was in constant contact with her mother. Uh, and at this time where they were located, uh, there was fighting going on in the streets, uh, and things like that. At night, you would hear the gunshots going off. Uh, we eventually were able to get her to go, but I will say that, um, when a disaster like this starts, the immediate panic is massive. Like they, it was interesting because the day that we got her out, there were, two different options, right? So we had two options. I had a friend uh, who was helping getting somebody else out who was also in in this process. And he knew somebody with a car and they were going to try and get the car to come and pick the ladies up. Well, my mother-in-law had heard that these buses were going to come and take everybody to Odessa where you could get on the train to get to Lviv, which was where everybody was walking across to get into Poland. Well, she went to the bus stop and it was just like pandemonium, like thousands of people waiting for like 10 buses so you knew you weren't getting on and we come to find out later that actually the buses never showed up uh okay yeah the 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 people who were running the buses told their family members and people that they knew they stopped the buses before they got to the bus stop picked up all their people and then off they went so the buses never even showed up so 
you know, first that, rule uh, that ever present human decency that we were uh, alluding yeah. to earlier. Yeah, for sure. So I guess first thing is always have a backup plan. Uh, yep. You know, you, you've got a, your main plan, but Murphy has a good way of messing that up for you. So we got her out through the car. Uh, they were able to get on the train. Uh, they actually went to Lviv and it was packed. Like everybody was trying to get there. So they actually went to another city over by, oh, I believe it was uh, Slovakia, if I'm not mistaken. My my geography could be off. I'd have to look it up. Someone can correct me down there uh, if I'm wrong. But uh, they ended up going from there to Prague and then Prague to uh, Poland uh, via train. Uh, but it came to the point where we were trying to get her mother to the United States. And uh, basically going through normal legal channels was not working. Like you could go to the embassy with, Mm -hmm. you know, your family member and they would deny you a visa, uh, which, you know, makes a whole bunch of sense, doesn't it? Uh, I say that somewhat facetiously. I'm sure you can tell. But, uh, you know, through my network of people that I had met during this process, I had someone else who eventually brought their, it was their daughter-in-law across the Southern border. Now I know everybody's thinking, Oh, he got like some, you know, coyote to take him across or something like that. That's not how it worked. Uh, well, so thank God, thank God for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, cause I wasn't about to do that. I'll tell you that right now. So if you recall back then uh, the president uh, basically said that, uh, you know, we're going to take on 200,000 refugees, but he failed to mention how exactly they were going to do that. Now, of course, now we have the uniting for Ukraine program, which would have been infinitely simpler if this had happened at that time. But what everybody was doing was they were going to the southern border. And when you're at the border, you can legally request humanitarian parole. And if you're granted humanitarian parole, you're allowed to enter the United States for a year. This is all completely legal. This is not anything like mm-hmm. I'm swimming across the Rio Grande or anything like that. Uh, so I talked with him and my wife and I basically decided, like, this is our best shot to get her mom here. But her mom has never traveled internationally. So it's like, okay. I got to go get her. And I will tell you right now, if I hadn't went to go get her, uh, she would have never made it. Uh, 100%. She would have probably not made it out of Poland. Uh, it's just, really? Just, yeah, it was it was pretty dicey. And it was, I'll just say the power of having my American passport with me was somewhat evident in this situation. So I, you know, we went, uh, I went over to Poland, uh, basically, and um, we got her there. Let's see. Uh, it was late March when I left. I'm just checking my notes here. And uh, I think one of the big prepper lessons I took for this is, you know, just don't be afraid to ask for help in a situation like this. Uh, you know, if you have that community built around you already, asking for help in these situations can be the difference between life and death. And I know we all have a lot of pride. We all know that we think that we should know how to do things. Uh, but if you really don't know, ask for help. And if I hadn't spoken to this gentleman and he hadn't told me his story about how they did it, I would mm-hmm. not have had the confidence to go and do this myself. No, that's huge. That's a, that's a very large undertaking and a lot of, that's a lot of variables. I mean, cross continental would be one thing, uh, internationally is, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine, you know, what it took to, to pull that all together. It was quite the operation, to say the least. Now, I'm not military, uh, so I say that a little bit jokingly. But, uh, you know, it definitely was there was a lot of nuances to it that I was not expecting. And I think probably the biggest, uh, you know, thing that I took away from this is, you know, just having the confidence in yourself uh, in in any given situation can make a huge difference on how people interact with you. Obviously, you know, this is the prepper mindset. 
podcast, right? And so I want to talk about mindset quite a bit here because that really played a big, bigger role in this entire adventure than much anything else. Because like when I got to Poland, right, I had checked out where my hotel was and it was only like a mile and a half away from the airport. So I'm like, well, I walk the dog two and a half, three miles a day. This is going to be cakewalk for me. Except yeah. the fact that my my directions, my walking directions took me through, let's just say a less than savory part of Warsaw. Uh, you know, I was walking like next to an interstate. There were like abandoned mattresses there. Uh, I didn't see any homeless people, but there were a lot of, there was a lot of trash. Uh, and it kind of made me think that if I had went through this area at night, it probably would have been really bad for me. Yeah. But, you know, really basically what I did in this point was I basically just, you know, head up, shoulders tall, eyes forward and, you know, just walk through like I freaking own the place, uh, for lack of a better term. I had to walk through a construction site to get where I was going. I just walked through like I was the foreman. No one said a word to me. Uh, and so, you know, this is lost on a lot of, especially men in, in our culture. If we're, if, if I'm going to go down this road, I'm going to go down it, right? Because I walked through Warsaw, I might as well. Sure. Uh, we're always told that, you know, you have to be nice and not challenge people and, you know, you don't need to show confidence because that's toxic masculinity, right? But a healthy dose of confidence and knowing that you're in charge of the situation can go a whole lot longer than being, you know, weak, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And if if there's one message I can get across to, to some of your viewers is body language matters, especially when you're in an area where you don't know uh, or in potentially a, a nasty situation, uh, if you can exude that confidence that you've got this under control and you know what you're doing, that can definitely save you a lot of headaches and potentially avoid a confrontation situation that you would have to do if you look like a soft target. Well, it also highlights the importance of, I mean, and I get not every situation is going to allow for it, but like the, the, I'll use the word, the term reconnaissance of, of your area so that you can figure those, those sorts of things out. You know, I think a lot of people lean very heavily on Google maps or Mm -hmm. whatever, um, or, or Apple maps, whatever phone you carry, right. Uh, to get you from point A to point B. And it's enough that it just tells us, you know, uh, what the traffic is like, um, with, I mean, to say nothing of the area you're driving through or walking through. Um, and we certainly have those areas here around Detroit where they go, oh, yeah, hey, the freeway is just real nasty here. We're just going to take you up on the surface road and you're driving through. You know, it looks like, you know, bombed out houses, you know, crack houses and stuff. You see just just awful shit. And you're like, well, yep, I'm glad it's uh, 2.30 in the afternoon and not, you know, uh, 9.30 a.m. Yeah, something like that. Right. Exactly. No, it really is. And uh, yeah, I was lucky that I got there during the day. I'll just put it that way. Thank heavens for time differences. But, uh, you know, the next, you know, kind of thing we had to do is I got to the hotel. Mom showed up. She was actually in Gdansk, Poland, which is up near the uh, the ocean there. She liked walking by the ocean. Uh, so she came down to Warsaw and uh, we met up at the hotel. Uh, it was good. But now I have to find a way to get us out of the country. And the big issue is that if you don't have a visa to the United States, you cannot even lay over in the United States for the exact same reason that I mentioned earlier, why everyone was going to the Southern border. Because once you arrive at a port of entry for the United States, you can claim humanitarian parole. So Mm -hmm. to prevent people from doing this, they basically don't let you transit through the United States unless you have a visa to be there. Of course, my mother-in-law didn't have one. Uh, so I had to basically 
finagle a way to get us to Mexico without stopping in the United States, which was a little tricky. Eventually, I found a flight that took us through uh, Zurich and then to uh, Heathrow and then Heathrow to Mexico City. So, you know, seemed fair enough. Uh, did a lot of research to make sure that she didn't need a visa to go through uh, the UK. Uh, and it didn't. And, you know, we get to the airport the next day and also did a lot of research to figure out I needed a, a visa for Mexico. So we went ahead and paid for that, printed it out. We get to the airport the next day, and this was the first moment I was like, if I wasn't here, she would have stu been stuck in Poland because the airline people were like, oh, where's your visa for this? Where's your visa for that? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. she doesn't need a visa for the UK. She wouldn't have been able to communicate that to the people there if I wasn't with her. And, you know, we get through, we get, everything's fine. We get our boarding passes. We get in through security. That moment, the Wi-Fi dies in the airport. They even oh, come on and on a, uh, you know, the announcement, the PA and say, yeah, we know the Wi-Fi is down. We're working on it. So now my wife, who is still at home, uh, has no idea if we made it through security, has no idea if we got on the plane. Uh, and, That's and so it is. And so one another lesson that I kind of learned here is just if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Uh, and the best thing you can do in that situation is really just take a deep breath, relax, understand that you're going to get through this and figure out a game plan. Uh, so many people would freak out, uh, would, and that just adds to your problems because now you have to deal with somebody who's freaking out. So in that moment, just be the calm in the storm, be the bigger person, relax, you've got it. And just take that deep breath, collect yourself and then move forward. Uh, and that, you know, being able to do that process when you're under stress, such a huge thing that you can do to really help enhance your chances of survival. Yeah, it's. The, the being able to keep calm is uh i think it's underrated i think people it let is. emotion drive and make too way too many of their decisions like in everyday life let alone high stress situations like i mean like this where i would say doesn't really get a whole lot higher stress i mean you're talking about your uh your life your survivability um so much uncertainty let alone if you if you've never traveled internationally which i mean some people have done a lot uh, I've done it. Um, I know there's a lot of people who have never left, uh, you know, the continental US or uh, whatever country they're in. It's just, it's not for better, or for worse, whatever. It's just not that common. And I could definitely see, you know, being stressed out, scared, uh, uncertain. And, and especially at that time, because of everything, right, that was going on that, you know, that you're living through, right? They were, I know, very short, very shortly after they were talking, they closed the border to Poland because yep. they were concerned about how many refugees they could they could take in because, you know, they have considerations for their own citizens. And there were other countries that were, you know, also having those kinds of questions and problems. And, you know, and even like you said, just finding someplace you could go adjacent to the US. Uh, people don't think about that stuff. You know, Canada, I'm pretty sure is not an option because they share a lot of the same, not the same laws, but, you know, fundamentally speaking, they look at a lot of immigration things either the same way that we do. Or I know I had a lot of people that were talking about leaving the country when the last president was elected. And mm -hmm. oh, hey, look, you can't just go to Canada because they need you to have a usable skill and they don't just let everybody in. They have like a validation process. You're not just a turd that floats in. You know, Are you it's telling me crazy. that the people on the view don't have usable skills in Canada. Yeah. Hell, fuck no, <laughs> oh, man. 
gosh, and here I thought they were just going to go. Uh, but yeah. no, you, you're absolutely right. It's it's one of those situations. And if you think about it, I'm literally in a country that is adjacent to an ongoing conflict right now, and a, a hot war, for lack of a better term. So yeah, there was a lot of danger. And being able to you know stay calm in that situation was definitely difficult, but was pivotal, especially later on that we'll get to. So you know, we end up getting on the flight. We get to Zurich, no problem, go through customs and we get to our gate and there's no plane there. And I'm like, well, this isn't good uh, because we only had like an hour and a half layover. And I'm like, hmm, this is a problem. Uh, And so thankfully they had Wi-Fi there and I was able to contact my wife and say, hey, we made it to Zurich, uh, but there's no plane. Uh, And eventually they come on, say that our plane had been delayed uh, in uh, Glasgow, if I'm not mistaken, in Scotland. And it was about an hour and a half delayed. At this point, I'm like, well, our connection's FUBAR at this point, because again, we only had about two, uh, two and a half, three hours uh, layover in Heathrow. So I'm like, yeah, there's no way we're making this flight. Uh, so our plane shows up. We successfully let, take off and land. And we get to Heathrow. And it, it's at this point that I kind of realized the fact that I've eaten basically nothing that day. I had a Nutri-Grain bar and a piece of chocolate. That's all that these airlines gave us on these flights. Yeah, it's and not so <laughs> It's not. Uh, but uh, we get to Heathrow and we get in line and... And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. We stood in line for eight hours uh, trying to get our flight rescheduled. Oh, uh, God. So they apparently there was an issue uh, with the British Airways computer system. Uh, so I don't know if they forced through an update or if it was Russian hackers or whatever it was. But basically, the entire British Airways system was effed up. Uh, so there, everybody was delayed, basically. And so... One of the things that you can kind of glean from this, and I talked to him about this earlier when we were talking about preparedness with food and water and things like that, why water is so much more important. Because, yeah, I hadn't eaten a lot that day, but water can really help you through a lot of those tough situations where maybe you're just going to have to, you know, deal with those hunger pangs and not, you know, have that, uh, you know, 24-7 McDonald's that you can go to and grab a Big Mac when you're hungry. Uh, not that that's the best choice, but, uh, you know, we have it as an option here in the West, whereas yeah. when you're traveling internationally and you're stuck in a line for eight hours, you don't necessarily have that. And so I would just say when you're prioritizing your preps, water always comes first. Yeah, it it really needs to. And that's I mean, more people I think you should consider carrying even if it's an empty bottle, right? And like an empty Nalgene or something like. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, in the civilized world, you know, uh, drinking fountains, even and and hell, even now, water bottle refill stations are pretty standard in a lot of places Not everywhere. But, you know, I would say, you know, you get a better than not chance of finding them, especially if you're in places like airports that have a lot of those things for, you know, for travelers. Uh, and, you know, like, obviously, you can't take a full one through security. TSA has an absolute shit fit about that. Oh, so yeah. you just take the empty one through. You can. It doesn't even take up space in your backpack. Throw a carabiner on there and clip it to that. It, it weighs, yeah. I don't know, a couple ounces. Like nothing. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it would be, it's a great thing to have. And let me tell you, in Europe, they're even more anal about fluids than they are here in the States. Uh, so yeah, definitely make sure that Nalgene's empty. But having that is a huge resource. And I'll say another benefit of what the way we did this is we traveled very light. Uh, which definitely helped later on uh, because we didn't have any checked bags. Uh, so we didn't have to worry about that. We just, my mom or my mother-in-law rather had basically like a rollerboard. I had a backpack and that was it. Uh, that's what we were carrying. So just carry on we, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. So we didn't have to worry about it and she didn't have a lot to begin with. Again, she was, you know, in a car with like three other ladies when she escaped. So there wasn't a whole lot of trunk space. I'll tell you that much. 
So she could just take what she could carry and that was it. So that she didn't have a whole lot to go. But uh, yeah, after we finally got, you know, through the line uh, at, at Heathrow, it dawned on me that it's like, okay, they're going to have us spend the night here. And my mother-in-law doesn't have a visa for entry. She didn't need a visa to transit through there, but she did need one to get in. Uh, so I asked uh, the the people there, they're like, oh, just go talk to customs. They'll take care of it. So I'm like, all right, I know how I'm going to handle this situation. So we get our e-tickets. They get they give us our vouchers to the hotel and we go to customs. I walk up there. I'm like, hey, I talked to the people over there at British Airways, right? And they said to go to the coolest guy at customs. And they said that was you. So I needed to make, I need to let you know what's going on here. Oh, and so he, he had this huge laugh. He just loved it. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that you can do in a situation like this where you're under a lot of stress is try and, you know, de-escalate the situation, uh, you know, try and make people feel better about themselves because it was like midnight, right? This guy wanted to go home, but he had to deal with all these freaking, you know, transit passengers who had to spend the night. And so he's like, dude, it's not a problem. I'm going to give when, when's your flight out tomorrow? And I, I showed him the e-ticket. And so what he did was he basically took a stamp put a visa directly into her passport that gave her entry into the UK until our flight the next day. And it wasn't a problem, but it's like, if I walk up there and I'm cranky and I'm pissed off and I, you know, I'm talking to this guy and he may just decide that he wants to make an example of me, but instead you make it a more light situation. It can be a much more enjoyable, uh, you know, interaction between people. And so I would just say if you're under a high stress situation, try and, you know, find a moment for a little bit of levity because that can go a long way in having people help you when you need it. Yeah. I mean, that's just treating people with, with decency, you know, when yeah. uh, actually when my wife and I flew to Vegas to get married, uh, we got there and, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm nervous as shit to begin with, you know, but, uh, we get there and they go, Oh yeah, your plane's been switched. And you go, okay. What does that mean? Well, it's a smaller plane. We go, Oh shit. So basically we lost our seat in like business class and we're gonna be put in economy. Uh, well, my wife being the level-headed one of the, the two of us, I was like, you know, what? I can't deal with this. I'm going to get a coffee. So she went and made friends with the ladies at the counter and goes, hi, you know, I'm just like, here's my, here's my dress. We're going to get married. If there's, you know, if there's any way I can just have this put in a closet on the plane. And, you know, you know, if, if there's any way we can get, you know, our seats in business class back and, you know, they were, they were really nice and receptive and they go, yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Thank you. And then two seconds later, it's a pair of like, you know, senior citizens come up and just total bitches about the whole thing rude yep. as hell screaming yelling demanding all this stuff and they swapped our seats so they got put in economy and you know and I, obviously uh clearly we could have we would have lived you know uh of so it's a slightly different situation but the point i think is still the same right you know treat people especially ones that uh hold the keys to your uh let's say success or failure of your, your mission here, uh, treat them with respect. And, you know, if it doesn't go your way, then all right, but it's almost a certainty that it wouldn't, if you walked up being an asshole. So exactly. So just try and check yourself, especially, you know, standing eight hours is, is kind of rough, especially when you don't get to go on a cool ride, like you do at Disney world or something like that. So yeah. it would have been really easy to have been pissed off, but I'm like, you know what, we just need to, we need to get to the hotel for the night because like, I want to get changed. I want to shower. Maybe there's food left. Uh, thankfully, they had left the kitchen open. So it was pretty clear to me that they had called the hotels and be like, yeah, you're going to get an influx of people tonight. You better keep the yeah. kitchen. Uh, so it was probably the best meal I'd had in a long time. Uh, and uh, I was greeted by a wonderful breakfast the next day. Probably the best breakfast we had the entire trip. I definitely loaded up uh, because I'm like, OK, 
you know, we may have another situation where I don't have any food for a while and uh, let's make sure that we're tanked up. So obviously okay. if you have that opportunity, uh, definitely take it. Uh, and the night before I had booked us a flight from Mexico city to Tijuana before, when I bought the initial tickets, there weren't any flights available to get to Tijuana. So I'm like, let's just get to Mexico city. And from Mexico city, we can go and find a place to cross. So I had booked a flight. We get to, to Heathrow and we go to get checked in and the lines are just ridiculous. It, it looked like a line at Disney world. I was put it that way. It was hundreds of people in line to get checked in. And I asked the British airways guy, I'm like, Hey, can we use this electronic check-in? He's like, you can give it a try. I'm like, all right, cool. We, we don't have any bags to check. He's like, yeah, it should work. So I go scan the e-tickets, pops out our boarding passes. I think we're good to go, right? So we get the, the boarding passes. We go to security. And they had this system there where you basically had to scan your boarding pass. Uh, they'd take a picture of your face uh, because I think, honestly, they're looking for less than honest people there at the airport right. in Heathrow. Yep. Uh, and then basically you'd have these Star Trek doors that would open up and you'd walk through and then the next person would do it. So I'm like, there's no way I can explain this to my mother-in-law because, well, she doesn't speak all that much English. Uh, so it's like, I think that showing is better than telling. So I scan my boarding pass, they take the picture, I open up, go through. Okay, good. Mother-in-law goes to scan her boarding pass. Won't take it. I'm oh, like, okay, wow. do it again. Won't take it. So eventually a British Airways employee comes over and says, oh, they need to see her visa to Mexico. I'm like, okay, can I go with her? They're like, no, if you leave the secure area, you can't get back in. So apparently my boarding pass was just a one shot deal. Oh, I'm shit. like, okay. So yeah, that, that was pretty much the thought that went through my head. Uh, I'm like, well, what are we going to do? She's like, don't worry about it. I'll take her to the front of the line. I'm like, okay. So at this moment I call my wife uh, and kind of give her the situation, you know, the sit rep, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, my wife then says the line of the trip, which is repeated multiple times. Uh, and she said, well, if there's a problem, just send her back to Poland. I'm like, honey, we're not sending her back to Poland. Okay. I am in the UK. I'm one flight away from Mexico. We're, we're doing this. Uh, and so being that calm, level-headed, as the Ukrainians like to say, uh, the rock in the storm, uh, if you can be that person, uh, regardless of who it's for, whether it's for your mother-in-law, your wife, your partner, uh, you know, whoever it is, if you can be that calm person, say, no, we're going to do this. We're going to get it done. That can carry you a long way. Mm -hmm. And so if, eventually the British Airways lady brought my mother-in-law back, scanned the boarding pass, and she was able to get in. So, you know, I could have easily just given up there and just like booked her a flight back to to Warsaw from there, from the UK, but I didn't. Cause I was like, we're, we're doing this. If we're good, if it's, I'm going to figure out what it's going to take and we're going to get it done. So then we, we get into the terminal and I get an email from our flight carrier saying that uh, there's a problem with my flight to Tijuana. And so I call them. And after going through about five different offices, they finally discover that uh, what had happened basically was the airline was overselling seats because all of uh -huh. the Ukrainians were doing this at this point. Yeah, everybody was going to Mexico and basically saying that, uh, you know, going to Tijuana. So it was very difficult to get a flight. So I'm literally like boarding the flight to get to Mexico City. And the guy's like, well, can we call you back in an hour? I'm like, no, you can't uh, because I'm going to be in the air. I'm, I'm literally on the boarding ramp right now. I'm like, can you call my wife? They're like, yeah, what's her number? So I gave them her number. Do you think they called? No, nope, no, probably they sure not. did not. No, nope, yeah. they didn't. So apparently people don't know how to read notes, but uh, I was in the flight, right? And I got this inkling. I'm like, I wonder if they called. So I go ahead and pay for FlyFi, which is terrible Wi-Fi, I might add. And I was able to get a message to my wife. Did they call you? And she said, no. Okay, so we're going to have to figure this out. So I had uh, my mother book us a hotel in Mexico City. 
and uh, send me the information. We go ahead and, uh, you know, get there to Mexico. We go through the line. We get there. They're asked for her visa to get into Mexico. And I give it to her. They're like, no, we need her visa to get in here. I'm like, that is a visa. He's like, no, this is a, a tourist thing or something. Like, you're going to have to get a visa. I'm like, well, how am I going to do that? And he says, well, you got to go online and, and do it. I'm like, well, please explain to me, sir, how you expect me to do this. You have the Wi-Fi blocked down here because we're in customs. There's no Wi-Fi allowed in customs. You're not allowed to you know, take pictures or anything mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. How exactly am I supposed to get my mother-in-law a visa for Mexico? And he kind of gives me that, that eye roll. And he's like, give me your, your passport. I give it to him. He goes away. Five minutes later, he comes back. He's like, now next time, next time, make sure you have this paper. I'm like, yes, sir. Absolutely. Next time I'm here in Mexico with my mother-in-law trying to, you know, come for vacation, we're Ukraine. definitely going to yeah. have this. Yeah, for sure, bro. Yeah. The, the undertone is I am never coming back here if I can avoid it. Yeah. Um, we get to our hotel and, you know, I, I get connected to the Wi-Fi. I talk with one of my friends who is actually also bringing his mother-in-law over. And he's like, hey, if you can get to Tijuana, there's like tons of people there right now. But we got my mother-in-law through early, so you can have our number if you can get there. I'm like, okay, let me see if I can get us there. That's the big problem. Uh, and so we try and find a flight. The best thing I can do is I can get us to Monterey. So I go ahead and book the flight. It was stupid cheap. We go down there and we hit another line like British Airways, right? I'm like, well, there's no way we're making this flight. Uh, it's just not going to happen. We didn't have enough time. And so I went to uh, the uh, the ticketing agents and my wife and I had talked about Mexicali or Calexico, depending on which side of the border you're on, as another way to get across. She had heard that people were getting across there. So, you know, one lesson, if you're in a situation like this, is always be flexible with your plans. Of course, we had planned on going to Tijuana because that's where everybody else had been going through. We knew that you could do it. It wasn't a problem. And so we had initially planned on going there. But, you know, things changed. And there were there were reports of and it got really pretty thick there in Tijuana. They were like hundreds of people in line ahead of you. And it was like a two or three day wait once you got there to get processed. Oh, through. Jesus yeah. Christ. Wow. They were putting okay. people up in gymnasiums. They had like they set up like hostels for lack of a better term in like gyms with cots and stuff like that for people who are trying to get across Just, the border. Yeah. So, to handle the, the influx. The volume. Of yeah. Yeah. It was insane. And so if you can be flexible in a situation like this and pivot away from your plan, it can make one, it can cut a lot of time uh, if you're trying to get somewhere. And two, it can be a big, uh, you know, lifesaver if you find, okay, this is not the best place to go right now. Let's pivot and go over here. It can be a huge thing. Uh, and so remaining flexible is an, an incredibly important skill skill to have. No, I it, it pace planning, all that, you know, primary, uh, you know, alternate uh, contingency and emergency. It's simple, but people don't think about that. Like I, I do it with my wife when we go on trips and stuff, even if we're just making mm -hmm. day plans. And it, I, I think it kind of drives her nuts. <clears throat> but oh, yeah. Some people can handle it. Well, I mean, but we've, we've run into enough situations now like we've been married five years uh we run into enough situations now that i, I don't have to justify it anymore like it, it may bug her but she knows she sees the value uh and you know it, it's just one of those things like you have to be able to say if this goes wrong what are we doing and it it could be anything hey if they're sold out of tickets to the movies what are we going to do instead down to, you know, and it could be something like you're saying here, right? Like, hey, we can't mm -hmm. get out of here this way. Where else are we going to go? What are our yeah. options? Let's evaluate. Let's have an idea of what's going on. 
Um, yeah. yeah, can't be overstated enough. Understated, yeah, overstated. Yeah, absolutely. No, it really is. Uh, we just had a quick power outage here. Uh, you may want to edit this part out. Hopefully, I still have. Are you? Can you hear me? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. I just, I have my uh, router on backup, but you never know. Uh, no. Okay. So anyway, so we get to the ticketing counter, right? And they're like, yeah, we can get you to Mexicali in three days. I'm like, well, I guess we're staying in Mexico City for a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, again, like when you're bugging out or you're trying to go from point A to point B in unknown territory, it's highly, there's a high potential you may get stuck somewhere for a period of time. Again, the best thing you can do is just stay calm, relaxed, and run with the situation as you can. Now, I was lucky the hotel we were staying in was physically connected to the airport. So I could walk from the airport to our hotel, which was very lucky. So I'm like, all right, if this is the best that we can do, then so be it. Because they're like, yeah, we can get you to Tijuana in five days. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. Three days is less than five. Complex math for doing it on stream, but I think I got it right. Uh, But uh, so we basically hunkered down in the hotel for the next two and a half days, basically, Uh, because I looked out and I'll I'll tell you guys, Mexico City is not the nicest place. Uh, It is not really isn't. No, (laughs) it is not a safe location. It is not Monterey. It is not, uh, you know, some vacate. It is not Cancun. It's pretty rough. And uh, I have some video from our hotel room. uh, It's just that you look out and like, no, there's no way I'm going out of here. So we basically just bugged in, for lack of a better term, in the hotel room for a couple of days. Uh, We went to, you know, we had the restaurant there and everybody was fine because we were all connected to the airport. You had to go through security and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. it was funny because I was texting with some of my friends back home. They're like, oh, you're going to go try some of the street tacos. I'm like, are you freaking crazy? Absolutely not. I am not. I am not setting foot out of this hotel. And if my wife found out, she would kill me uh, because. You know, at this point, you know, in Mexico, we are somewhat concerned for our safety. So eventually we got on our flight uh, to get to Mexicali and the wife and I had been talking this whole time about where we're going to cross because there were several options. Honestly, Mexicali was one of them, but there's this other town called Los Alagones. It's the most northerly crossing into the United States, a little bit of trivia, and there's a lot of dental work done there. So people come from the U.S., they cross the border, they go into Mexico and they get their dental work done because it's cheaper uh, than you know that what their insurance would cover here if oh, they yeah. have insurance. Yeah. So it was a huge medical tourism town. So there's a lot of Americans there, right? So it's relatively safe as far as border towns are concerned. Mm-hmm. And so I called the border office three times, right? I said, hey, I'm traveling with my mother-in-law from Ukraine. Can we claim humanitarian parole there? Oh yeah, just get here. We'll take care of it for you. I basically got the same answer three times from three different people. So I'm like, okay, okay. sounds yeah. like we can do this, right? So we get there. Should be easy, yeah. Should be easy, right? We get to Mexicali. They, of course, pull my mother-in-law aside for uh, random passport checking. Funny how I didn't get random passport checking. But uh, she got through that just fine. Uh, They wanted to look at her visa is what they told me. Uh, And we got a taxi to take us to Los Alagones. It was like half an hour drive, I would say. And I'm sitting there watching my phone as the taxi driver's taking us there. I'm like, okay, is this guy kidnapping us? I'm like, No, this is how I would drive there if I was taking a car. So, you know, we get there. He gets us about a block away from the border, thinking we're good to go, right? I walk up to the border. There's maybe 20 people there. I'm like, oh, we got this in the bag. We get there. I tell the border patrol officer when we get our turn, I'm like, we need to claim humanitarian parole for my mother-in-law. Oh, you can't do that here, sir. I'm like, what? He's like, Uh, no, you can't can't do that here. I'm like, well, I, I called your office yesterday, and they said we could. He's like, are you trying to tell me how to do my job? I'm like, Whoa, hey, buddy, 
Take it wow, easy okay. here. Huh? What a short fuse, uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he he clearly got up on the wrong side of the bed. So I, we stepped out of line because I wasn't going to make a scene. I didn't want to get arrested, right? Uh, and so I called the office again while I'm standing outside. And they're like, no, we can't do that here. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? I called you guys yesterday and you said you could. He's like, well, why didn't you come yesterday? I'm like, because I was sitting in freaking Mexico City waiting on my flight to get here. That's why. Uh, and so he's like, no, you're going to have to go back to Mexicali. Uh, they're doing all that there. So I never got confirmation of this, but I kind of have a feeling that they basically put out a memo that said all the Ukrainians have to either go to Mexicali or Tijuana. They were only going to let those offices handle that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just my gut feeling Yeah, uh, yeah. because I heard at least from my wife in the channels that she was part of no one crossing in any other border towns, but those two moving after that day. So now we're tasked with the problem of getting back to Mexicali. And there's a slight problem that there was no Uber service in Los Alagones and there was no taxi service. So I'm like, how in the world are we going to do this? And this moment uh, that I'm going to tell you guys here is probably the one of the most striking moments of the whole trip for me. I basically was looking on my maps, trying to find a taxi company, and it said that there was one there, right? So we start walking towards it. And I get to this point where I'm looking down this road, and it was kind of like the movie thing, right? Where the center of the screen says focused and everything behind it like zooms in. I don't know yeah. how they do that cinema cinematically, but it was kind of like that. And I'm looking down this road. I'm like, no, we're not going down this road because we may not walk back out of it. Uh, and so at that point, I basically did a full 180. And the the biggest lesson, you know, if we're talking about you know, confidence, staying calm, things like that. If your gut says, don't go there, listen to that every time. It tells you that because it is going to save you so much more than you may ever realize. Of course, I'll never know what would have happened if I went down that road, but it probably wouldn't have been good. Uh, and so I would say if, if you've made it this far in the podcast, this is the gold nugget that everyone needs to take away from it. And when you're somewhere that you don't know is safe or not, if your gut says stay away from this area, just 180 and walk the other direction. Yeah. I mean, and it, it highlights again, you know, your, your levels of planning, um, flexibility. Like if you found one alternative plan, you have an, a contingency plan. There's, there's another way. Yeah. I mean, very seldom, I think, would you truly, I mean, I don't know, unless you're out in the wilderness or something, you have to cross the ravine. I don't know. Uh, uh, there, there's always, right. There's always another option. There's always something else you can do. There's always uh, another choice that can be made. I mean, carries with it a different set of consequences, kind of like the three-day stay in Mexico City, but it is an option. Yep, for sure. So at this point, of course, I have no idea what I'm going to do. My wife is freaking out. She's already told me to send her back to Poland again, but I'm like, honey, how am I going to do that? We're it's right like, here. Why would I do that? Yeah. It's like, I can see the United States. It's over there. Uh, but it's like, I, I can throw a rock and hit it, right? But uh I'm trying to figure this out and we're walking back. I'm going through the medical area and there was a, a doorman for lack of a better term, standing in front of one of these doctor's offices. And he's like, Oh, how are you doing today, sir? Uh, in perfect English, I might add. And so I'm like, well, not so hot. Uh, and he's like, Oh, what's going on? So I go ahead and tell him my story. I tell him basically that we're stuck. We need to get back to Mexicali. And he says, hang on just a second. Let me make a call for you. Uh, and so he spends the next like half an hour calling everybody he knows that has a car. Uh, trying to get us a ride back. And he asked me how much I paid to get there. I told him, he's like, it's probably going to be a bit more. I'm like, I don't care. 
uh it's at like at this you, point yeah it at this matter. point it's like if the dude says it's going to be a hundred bucks i will slap the benjamin down on the dashboard once we get there i don't care it's like if you can get us there safely that's all that matters so eventually he gets uh jose uh comes to pick us up in from what i can basically say was a jalopy uh for lack of better terms i mean like the windows were were down there was no air conditioning uh, I didn't notice this until later, but to put the car in gear, he had to get under the hood and like physically move the transmission into the like drive and reverse. Oh, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I, I know. Right. So, but uh, you know, Jose comes, he picks us up. We get back in the car again. I'm watching him on my map app. I'm like, okay, we're not being kidnapped. Seems good. Uh, but we just had the loveliest discussion uh, the whole trip back. And, you know, this highlights kind of one of my my last few lessons to kind of give you is, you know, sometimes you're going to have to rely on the kindness of strangers to help you through a situation. I don't know what, you know, force, you know, said that you can trust this guy. Now, I did have several people who walked out of the dentist's office later and said, this guy's the real deal. He'll, he'll take care of you. Uh, of course, I tipped him pretty well uh, for doing that for us. Uh, but, you know, you may have to rely on someone else in a disaster situation. And, uh, it kind of goes back to helping others when, if they need help and you can give them that help, you probably should, uh, because it may come back to pay you off later. Now I'll say, you know, of course, Mexico city is rough, but the vast majority of the Mexican people are very kind, uh, helpful, would never do anything to hurt you. Of course, we get a lot of the bad stories come through, uh, from stuff with the cartels and things like yeah. that. But you know, had a great discussion with Jose, even after we got to the border, he got us right to the, the, the border office basically gave me his phone number. He says, if anything happens, if you need anything, if you need translation or anything like that, just give me a call. I'll do anything I can to help you. Thankfully I didn't need to do that. I thanked him profusely, paid him about double what he asked. Uh, and you know, I wished him his best because I mean, he took a couple hours out of his day to drive us here. Uh, you know, that he could have spent with his family. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that he was taken care of for that. So uh, I know we're getting low on time here, but basically, uh, to kind of summarize the rest of it, we get to the border. We have to wait in line for about another good six hours uh, before they called us back uh, to go through uh, the humanitarian parole process. Uh, wow. And uh, we get back there, and I swear to you, I have that. We got the happiest border patrol agents on the planet when they called <laughs> us back. Total opposite stark, of the last ones. Yeah. Stark contrast to our first encounter that day, right? Yeah. So, we get this lady come out. She's got this jacket. She's like, oh, who's next? And uh, one of the volunteers who was there says, oh, this this gentleman's bringing his mother-in-law. He's a U.S. citizen. She's like, oh, okay, yeah. Why don't you have him come on back? He can go with her. And the whole time that I'm sitting there on the border, I'm prepping my mother-in-law. The thing that she has to say when she gets back there is humanitarian parole. And obviously, she doesn't really speak English all that much. And we're sitting there for six hours. And I say, okay, what do we? what's the magic word? She's like, she's like, da, da. I'm like, no, that's not it. That's yes in <laughs> Russian, by the way. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's humanitarian parole. Can you say that? Da, da. I'm like, oh boy, it's going to be good. So we get back there in the office, right? Which was air conditioned. It was lovely uh, because we've been sitting out in the heat all day. And we get this, this jolly gentleman who obviously had just been a shift change or something because he hadn't processed that much paperwork that day because he was happy. And he's like, oh, Miss Kropenko, what can the United States do for you? And it's like a deer in headlights for my mother-in-law. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> say it. Like, yeah. Duh, duh. I'm like, no, I need you to say it. You man. And it's like, we kind of get through the first word and the guy's like, it's okay. I understand what she's saying. I'm like, okay, thank heavens. 
So eventually we, they do the process. They, you know, they fingerprint her, they do the whole uh, thing. They explain to her that she's got a year here in the United States under your humanitarian parole, stamp her passport. Welcome to the United States. Uh, we go through, I get my own personal, uh, you know, border patrol expert or escort rather to the front of the line. They're like, well, you need to check this guy in. He's a U.S. citizen. I mean, it was like stamp, stamp, welcome back to the United States. So I'm like, why couldn't it have been that easy for my mother-in-law, right? <laughs> um, we get outside. We had friends actually come from San Diego to pick us up. Uh, so oh, wow, they okay. came, they came, picked us up, drove us back to San Diego that night. And I will say uh, just one final little prepping lesson for you. Uh, we were in our clothes for, oh, the better part of 24 hours it was pretty hot. And uh, personal hygiene really makes a big difference when you're on some type of endeavor like this, making sure that you have extra socks on hand, uh, things that you can change into if given the opportunity can be the difference between life and death. Because if you don't have your feet and you're taking the ankle express, then uh, you're pretty much dead in the water at that point. Uh, so, and your clothes are going to wear down a lot faster in harsher environments than you think they will. Uh, so I'll just say I was very happy to get in the shower that night when we got to our friend's house. Uh, I had athletes foot pretty bad the next day, but uh, yeah, if you can change out, especially socks every once in a while, there is something oh, to be said. Dude, about yeah, that. no fresh socks are, I actually just finished teaching a high school band camp. And that was one of the things we told, well, two things we told the kids was the grass is going to be wet in the morning. So if you can bring a second pair of shoes, but if even if you can't pack like two or three pairs of socks per day, because nothing is going to do more for you to keep you on your feet and keep you comfortable than fresh, clean socks. And you don't believe me now hearing it, but I, every year I have kids like, yeah, I felt so good. I go, oh yeah, I, you do everything on your feet. So mm -hmm. yeah, you have to take care of them. You have to. Yes. Swamp foot's no joke. Uh, so you don't want yes. it. <laughs> and so, yeah. but yeah, um, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up, we got back to Chicago easy enough. I flew out of O'Hare and then we drove back to Indiana where I live uh, relatively without issue. Um, since then, they actually extended the stay from everyone who crossed the border because about a week after we got home, they closed the border. They weren't allowing the Ukrainians to come through there anymore. And they started the Uniting for Ukraine program, which, of course, would have been infinitely easier if I could have done that. But we didn't know that that was going to happen. We didn't know they were going to have that program later. So it was one of those things. It's like, if we don't do this now, we may never get this opportunity again. And so sometimes you have to strike when the iron's hot and just go for it, uh, right. you know, and being able to make that decision, just be like, OK, yeah, we're doing this. Let's go. Uh, really important. Uh, but yeah, they gave her an extra year on a humanitarian parole. I've since, you know, filed for temporary protected status. And I don't want anybody who's listening to be thinking like, oh yeah, I'm paying for this. No, uh, there is no taxpayer funds that are going to my mother-in-law. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, so with humanitarian parole, that's considerably different than refugee status. Uh, so I can promise everyone listening, you have not paid me a dime. Uh, so just, <laughs> just to make everybody feel a little more comfortable about that, that we did do this the right way. Uh, like I said, we didn't swim across the Rio Grande or anything like that. But uh, yeah, we've been able to to keep her here so far. Uh, she's good through until like next April, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we've had uh, my wife and I had our first child together uh, while she was here, so that was a really joyous occasion for her. Oh, something awesome. she didn't something she didn't think she'd ever get to see. Uh, yeah. And so it has really been a it was quite a rewarding experience, but definitely a stressful one. One that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. And yeah, if I can just say, you know, a couple of things to your listeners, if you made it this far in the podcast, first, kudos to you. Thanks for listening for so <laughs> long. 
Uh, but yeah, if you can stay calm in these types of situations and just keep your head about you, more than likely a solution will present itself that you can, you know, accomplish. And just listen to your gut. If your gut says don't go there, don't do it, and pack extra socks. Those would be my three big takeaways. Yeah. No. It and it's. I mean, and thank you for sharing the story with with us. And you know, it, it highlights all the things that we talk about. Um, you know, and and you can round it out and just say a better, you know, a more prepared mindset will help you with a lot of these things. But yep. and a lot of people ignore it or they laugh at it or they think, you know, oh, what am I ever going to need to do? You know, fill in the blank, whatever. And, you know, from the story you just you just shared, like any one of us could live through any portion of that, let alone having to go through like you did that that whole ordeal there where any one of those skills, whether it be the planning uh, or, or any of it. Right. That missing that piece. Right. Would have derailed the whole thing. It would have been just critical failure and you're done. You know, back you go Poland. back to the U.S., she goes back to, you know, mother-in-law goes back to Poland and it's like, all right, well, I guess we'll just wait and try again and, you know, spend all the money on all of this again. And yeah. I mean, it's about the money, but I mean, it, it, it's certainly a consideration. And when you oh, look definitely. at it, like, are you willing to just wipe that all off the ledger and say, well, we'll start all over again in six months or three months or, you know, and, and what's to say of any of the uncertainty that comes with sending you both back, you know, to where you started uh, is it stable there in Poland? Is she going to have some place to stay? Like, you know, I, there's, there's a lot to it. So I think I, I honestly, just so much that can be learned from that story. And, and really, I appreciate you, uh, you know, coming on and, and making the time Chris to, to share that with, with the listeners and, and myself and, and hopefully that resonates with people, you know, that it's, it, it's the world we live in, you know, and will it probably happen to you? Maybe not, but I mean, shit, it could, or yeah. somebody you care about. It's really important. It is. No, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, please tell your friends about this podcast, uh, get them to download it uh, because there's a lot of great lessons here. A lot of great nuggets that every prepper can, you know, get from this, regardless of whether you're new or you've been prepping for 20 years. Yeah, I agree. And, and thanks again, man, so much. Uh, we'll obviously we'll be in touch and uh, sure. be safe out there, sir. You too. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Wow. So clearly a whole lot that Chris and I got into. And I mean, what a story, you know, uh, and, and honestly, you know, uh, it's something that if we want to be real with ourselves, like looking at looking at that scenario and that situation, would you have the guts to, to do what he did? Um, let alone, right. The wherewithal to handle the, the situation, the stresses, the variables, uh, as well as he did. You know, I'm sure a lot of us would like to say, yeah, no big deal. Uh, just a lot of you know, bureaucratic red tape that had to be cut through and managed. And yeah, it's easy to say that from hindsight um, as somebody who, you know, and potentially right as an American that has the safety and validation of that passport. That's kind of like the golden ticket that's going to get you everywhere to get back home versus somebody who doesn't have that and is trying to escape uh, a really <clears throat> just unfortunate situation. I mean, so much to be pulled from that, uh, so much to be learned from that story, you know, in addition, and that's just, that's an addition to everything that we got into in the beginning half of our conversation, talking about the importance of preparing, right. And, and in the scope of a suburban environment, I feel like there's so much information out there that, 
is only geared towards those people that live out in rural America. They have no neighbors. It is geared and built towards the idea that you're just not going to have access to any supplies, any food, any kind of conveniences, any kind of energy sources, basically a worst case scenario. And, you know, that could be true for some of you. Uh, But, you know, think about things, uh, you know, as they apply to you practically. And most of us do live in suburban, you know, environments. There are neighbors around us. There are resources and things around us. We do have access to things like grocery stores, which, yes, in the event that things go under, are going to be of probably little use, but they will be of some use, especially for gathering things like canned goods, dry goods that can be stored, convenience items, sanitary items that don't have a one week or two week shelf life, like some produce or meat or things like that might. So uh, I, I thought it was a tremendous conversation with Chris. I really, really loved getting into into all of that. You know, I had an idea of what we were getting into when, you know, we, we set up the conversation and, and obviously all those things had no idea the length to which, you know, his story and, and, and uh, his knowledge went. So I was very, very happy to be able to sit down and talk with him. Uh, always interesting to be able to bring on some of these really, really cool people that have uh, a breadth of experience from different walks of life. And, and keep in mind, again, <clears throat> we hear these stories and things, you know, it's one thing if you're somebody who was trained to do this uh, as part of a government agency or a military and you've done these kinds of things uh, in your past life with support and, and things like that. Uh, totally different. Operating as a civilian with no prior experience other than just your wits and your demeanor and your mindset on how you're going to approach the situation, how you're going to handle it. Um, honestly, the whole story reminds me a lot of uh, this Operation Pineapple Express situation that we dealt with getting people out of Afghanistan. Now, obviously, not exactly the same, but in both instances, you know, it was civilian driven. Uh, the, the government agencies were not really doing the things that they could to help. And in many instances, right, made it worse. And I, I encourage anybody who's listening who hasn't read the book Operation Pineapple Express to pick that one up and, and read it. It's a very good read, very sad story. There's a lot of parallels and similarities uh, between the story that Chris shared with us and the stories that are detailed in in that book. Um, I got mine at Costco, if anybody's curious, which is, is always great because obviously they're cheaper, but you can probably get it on Amazon as well. Um, but at any rate, I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. Um, I do want to get more into the preparedness space, talk with people who have the mind for that, have the knowledge for that, have the experience uh, for that sort of thing. And it's something that we can all spend probably more time, more money, and more effort working on and developing. Um, and, and, you know, on the, the instance that that's not you, you have, you know, tons of water and food and everything. Good. Good. Make sure you are sharing that information with those around you and do all, all the ancillary things that, that Chris and I spoke about working with your community, developing those connections and those relationships. So people know who you are. And in the event, something, you know, goes awry that you are easily identified as a friend as somebody who can be, you know, relied upon, uh, or at the very least seen not as an enemy. So tons and tons of, uh, of good stuff here. I, again, I, I just, I hope you guys enjoyed it. <clears throat> I, I certainly did. And, you know, I look forward to, to connecting with Chris in the future and, and keeping in touch with him. Um, you guys check the show notes. Uh, we're going to put in the link for you guys to get $20 off from ammo.com, uh, which is always great. Anytime you can save money when you're trying to, you know, stock up on ammo is a good thing. 
Uh, we're going to throw that in there for you as well. But that's all I got, you guys. That's that's my episode this week. And now that I'm back, like I said, we're on our normally scheduled programming here. So we will have another episode next week. Same time, same place, all that goofy, cheesy shit. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Until next time, get out there, work hard, train smarter, and be prepared. Be prepared.